You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey, Joe. Nice to see you, man. Hey, Chuck. Thanks for having me. I think we're going to talk about how wonderful Sprawl is today. <laughs> I'm going to tell you, so internally at Strong Towns, we'll we'll make this video called like Sprawl is Awesome or something like that. But I know when I first started adding new people to the team, I had to kind of try to create like a, now we call it a style guide, which is much fancier than what I first did. But I think it was Rachel who came on first. And I'm like, here's words we don't use. And it's not like we banned them. Like you can never use this word, but like, don't use the lazy shorthand of sprawl. Don't, don't use the word sprawl. And I've actually written an article like, you know, sprawl's not the problem. And I've tried to like delve into this notion, but we will use the word sprawl for this conversation. And I think what we mean shorthand by that is, well, let me ask you what you mean. If you were to define sprawl, how would you how would you define it? Like what would be your what would be kind of your goalposts? Well, there's disconnected uses, the inability to walk from my neighborhood to my grocery store, you know, it's the corridor streets that kind of knocked it out. It's almost like somebody took a city that was like a piece of China and just dropped it on the floor and it just scattered yeah. about. A lot of it is being cautious of the the audience and and being aware of who's in the room rather than preaching. It's let's talk about a way to relate to this. So I'm cautious personally about using the term because it could be insulting to people in the audience. My mom, my mom likes sprawl. You know, I want to yeah. insult my mom. You know, we we have a sort of a style guide as well to be cautious of using those words and being agnostic or, or politically independent in our conversations with the audience does make me think like, why don't we talk about it more? Like, why don't we have this conversation? Well, I think that is the, the reason why I've, I've always been hesitant to use the term is because it does have, and I think political might be the wrong word, but I think it's been co-opted within politics as like a, a shorthand slang for maybe it's too harsh to say, but I think it's, it's a, it's a shorthand slang for where most of red America lives. So if you throw around the word sprawl, it's almost like you are saying, I'm from blue America and I'm looking across the divide at at lesser people and they're the way that they live. And I don't think that's a very scientific way to define sprawl, but that's kind of why I've avoided it because it's it is so charged in our, in a sense, culture, right? We've gotten a very charged political environment all around. Yeah. I and mean, we have to be cautious of the fact that it's it's almost like these two branding campaigns are like at war with each other, like a championship wrestlers match. And right. if you fall prey to that, you're you're in the mud with it, you know? Right. Years ago, I went to I was <laughs> this is way before Strong Towns. I was at an American Planning Association conference. So this is back in my trying to be a planner days. And there was a session called, it was like a debate over the merits of sprawl, whether sprawl was good or not. And I thought, I, I want to go listen to this. I want to go listen to this conversation. This this sounds 
Like it'd be very interesting. And the two speakers, I can't remember who they were, but it wasn't like a Randall O'Toole type. It was like a legit, thoughtful, you know, thoughtful person. And wait, wait a minute. Are you saying Randall O'Toole isn't <laughs> legit and thoughtful? <laughs> yeah, I'm suggesting that Randall O'Toole is not very thoughtful. Yeah, that would be that would be right. Randall O'Toole has at times been nice to me. So I don't mean to throw him under the bus, but he's also been a raging lunatic around me, which is why I, I don't have a problem saying he's not. I'll be more blunt. I, it's like a shill for a certain, yeah. like a certain type. You know, it's like he will not come off that one type. And it's like, that's very inflexible. And it's not right. intellectually honest. It's intellectually pure, which wouldn't it be nice if we could all be pure. Um, but it's right. like, look, dude, pure, but not you drive, you drive a car and don't you drive the, You don't pay for the roads you drive on. So come on now. Uh, actually, remember well, you changed him about that? <laughs> you okay? I was just—it just occurred to me. You were in Lafayette when I had the, you yeah. know, the debate with Randall O'Toole, <laughs> and remember when he argued that there should be no local lobbying, like there sh we should not be like expanding government and all this, except it would be good for the city of Lafayette to hire a lobbyist to go to the state capitol and lobby for more roadway funding. Yeah. And I'm like, you are a shill. Like you're, you, you're intellectually dishonest. So I, I go to this session at APA, right? And the one dude gets up and he has his whole monologue about how sprawl is horrible. And it's the standard, you know, da, da, da. the other guy got up and he was utterly fascinating. This is very influential with me. It stuck with me for a long time. In fact, it connected a lot of, of connected a lot of branches for me because he showed like historical cities and he said every city has grown outward has had outward expansion and outward expansion is good and he went through and like showed how they all it left me thinking like this word sprawl is incomplete because cities grow and this is a strong grow incrementally up incrementally out and become incrementally more intense i said that a, a ten thousand times that incremental of out in one definition of sprawl is sprawl, but it's not the hyper out post-World War II. And to me, if I were to define sprawl today in our context, I wouldn't say it's the incrementally growing out. I would say it's the, you described dropping the piece of China. It's the denuding of the city, right? And the hyper-aggressive outward expansion, those two things kind of in combination with each other. So in it's, a sense, like we all live in sprawl, right? It's at the cataclysmic scale. It's yeah. it's a really destructive force. The other thing is, is back to strong towns, as you point out, is the inflexibility of it all. It's mm -hmm. like made to be done at that level. And it's not baked well, you know, it's not, it's like, I mean, I like cookie dough. Don't get me yeah. wrong, but it's not the cookie yet. It's not a maturity level that's sustainable over a long haul. I don't, okay, this is going to be a totally, we're, we're, we're often not related stories here, but in grad school, one of the things that we had to read was a, was a piece of paper by Michel Foucault called mm. Diacritics. I don't know if you had to read that in your planning program, but. No, but I've read some Foucault. Yeah. Yeah. So let, let's bring some existentialism in here. Like Diacritics is all about node expansion network. So you start as a node things expand out. He, he, he's not writing about planning. He's writing about just right. things on life. the planet, but yeah, it's culture. Life. But you, know, you think about bacteria, you think about cell structure in our bodies. 
mm-hmm. there's an expansion that happens. There's there's the node that you start with a cell division. It expands. It becomes a network, and then it repeats itself. There's a like cycle that goes. Um, but inside the network, you have to have nodes on that network. Well, cities should be doing the same thing. With that, ex- it's that expansion period that becomes the, the the questionable is the meat there of the city. Does that make sense? It does. You remind me of this metaphor of the human body that I've used a few times, and I I have a visual image, but I don't have like a very good. English description of it yet. I've tried it. You know, when you're talking, you try things out and like that didn't resonate with the crowd and you maybe come back to it later. So this is mine that has not resonated with the crowd yet, but I'll give it to you because maybe you can help me flesh it out. I feel like when we're talking sprawl, what we're really talking about is the city as an emaciated human being. So it has all the parts, like it has a heart, it has lungs, it, it has skeletal structure. But there's no meat on the bones. It's literally like emaciated and emaciated to the point where like things are just brittle and not functioning well. And you can still get blood to circulate around, but it doesn't circulate real well. And you can get oxygen into the bloodstream, but it's really suboptimal. And it's just a very weakened, you know, to me, the metaphor is like this weakened, emaciated person because you've not in a sense, strengthen things as you've grown, it would be as if you gave an infant hypergrowth serum that had, you know, everything grow just really, really fast, but with no meat or substance to it. And that is that lacking of nodes, right? Like the node is there in a sense, but it, yeah. it's it's become more diffused to where the network doesn't actually function the way it's supposed to. Does that make sense? Yeah, but to, I mean, going off that metaphor, it's like we have to have the patients as doctors to kind of work with the patient, you know, to understand the, the diagnoses. You know, it's hard because you also have to have free will and decision at the patient side too. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. And to go in there judgy and say, your arm is emaciated, your arm is bad. Yeah. Like no one wants to hear that. So it's no, but if I went in, help the patient. But if I, Right. But if I went into you and said, you, you're lacking in nutrition. And then you were just like, well, I'm just going to gorge myself then to thicken up. No, like that's not the answer either. You actually have to, I feel like the human body is a really good metaphor for how a city grows because, you know, we start out as infants, we become toddlers, we grow to adolescence. Um, you become a teenager, you go through, you know, the young adulthood, there's a life cycle there and you can't skip one to go to the other. You actually have to like build, you have to be a pudgy baby in order to become a toddler, right? Like it's that pudginess, that excess fat actually protects you and helps you get to that next phase. And if a baby's born with no body fat and never develops body fat, there's actually something wrong with them. But if you're 40 years old and you still have baby body fat, like something's wrong with you then. There's a transition you go through. And I I think it's that we in modernity with affluence and in a sense, a mandate to build things to a perfect state. We've looked at all these cities that were toddlers or, you know, infants And we said, this is going to be a kick-ass teenager someday. Let's just skip right to the teenager phase. 
And what you have is a bunch of emaciated teenagers that fail to thrive. Like they never get to adulthood. They never get to maturity. This was my argument about Charleston when we were there. Remember when we walked around and I, this was forming in my brain and I don't think I communicated it well, but it was this idea that Charleston makes me sad. It makes me sad because you have, you know, 12 square blocks or whatever of the most beautiful city in, in North America, really, I think. I mean, there might be others that are comp comparable, but it is one of the most beautiful spaces. But when you step back and look at it, you realize that it's like in its teenage phase and we just arrested its development in a teenage phase. It never got to adulthood. It never became Paris, like, which it should have, right? It never got those six story, four to six story, gorgeous buildings with whatever the colonial architecture would have been. And then it's surrounded by this complete emaciated teenager that, you know, is never going to thrive at all. And, and we are kind of robbed of what would be two square miles of beautiful, gorgeous Charleston, right? Like it's not there and it should be there. And instead we treat it like a museum piece. You know, we, we put it under glass and we're like, oh, how cute. And I'm like, it would be as if you took a really beautiful teenager and put them under glass and so we're just going to look at you as a cute teenager, you know, for the rest of your existence. I think it's kind of pathetic. Back to your metaphor about cities are humans, right? This is something right. we organic. decide to make right. our own nest. It's our own organic material. Mm -hmm. And we're making these choices architecturally and from a design standpoint to design them this way. And it's interesting that if you do look at the anthropologically or maybe... Um, archaeologically, the span of human cities and how we built these things, we do build them. It's almost like they do reach a state where they, I guess New York's probably not a good example. It's its own I think New York is a great higher example. level. Okay. I think New York's a great example because what it is, John Anderson used to push me on this too, because I would talk about buildings basically being torn down and rebuilt, torn down and rebuilt, torn down and rebuilt to higher intensity. And he kept saying, like, it's just not feasible, Chuck. It just doesn't work. Like, the economics of it doesn't work. I think what happens is that the first couple iterations are much quicker. But when you get to, like, New York intensity, it happens over a longer, longer period of time, right? So you don't see, like, one generation go by where the building then gets torn down and rebuilt as something higher. You, you have, in a sense, its metabolic rate slows down. And it becomes this thing that matures like far more slowly, right? Well, the stuff out on the edge has a high metabolic rate. It's it's turning over very quickly. In the core, the, the metabolic rate is a lot slower. There's more stability. Well, to be fair, New York, you know, the, my reaction about New York is actually a very cartoonish reaction. So shame on me for that. You know, because New York <laughs> is actually, when you go there, it's like there's a lot of great neighborhoods that aren't yeah. the scale in what we call New York, you know, yeah, there's, there's yeah. very nice neighborhoods that are very modest and high, high density, but, mm. but very humane and feel like a neighborhood and not like a central business district kind of feel. Yeah. And also, as you go out into that network and the expansion, there are mm. cities unto themselves that have their own cores and areas. Absolutely. Well, New York is the, you know, having grown up here in central Minnesota, and experience big cities as Minneapolis, St. Paul, and Chicago. You know, New York is the first place where I had people bring me around and show me different neighborhoods. And like, this is, we're still in New York City, but this is Queens. 
And like, this is different, you know, this is different. And this over here is Brooklyn and here's how it's different. And, and to get that sense of places that were at different levels of maturity and maturing differently. Now, New York has sprawl, right? I mean, it's not as um, pronounced. And I think the, the degree of difference between the core and the edge is so much greater. And the, you know, the, I guess drop off is so much quicker than you have like here in my hometown where it's like, I, you know, you, you live in this neighborhood and I can drive two miles that way. And it's one acre, two acre lots. It's more dramatic there, but New York still has sprawl. I mean, it still has that effect. I mean, it's why they have commuter, commuter culture and can't get rid of their automobiles, even though like it doesn't, no one who lives in New York drives. I, I'm sure people drive, but like there's such a high, non-auto, you know, of their actual population. It's cheap to park on the street. It is. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> anyway, sorry, I, I like drifted us off into New York land. So back to no, the, bo- the body, like the finished state though, like, I think you could argue like, well, Paris is trapped in amber, right? Rome is not Rome, New York, Rome, Italy no, is no, trapped in amber. <laughs> um, <laughs> is it though? I have this question about Paris, right? Is Paris locked in amber? And I think you would say clearly the metabolic rate on the edges of Paris, what they would call their suburbs, which look nothing like, I mean, have no care, nothing in common with American suburbs, but it's what they call their suburbs. The metabolic rate there is much, much higher than in the core, but in the core, is it zero? And I, maybe it is, maybe, maybe it is, but I've been to Paris and I've seen things being rebuilt and, you know, recast and it's at a much slower pace. I don't well, know. You're right. I mean, to, to be fair, like if you go to Nanterre, which is west mm-hmm. of, it's like across the river um, from the core of Paris through the, uh, the Grand Arc, the, the new Arc de Triomphe modern building mm-hmm. you can actually see nanterre from there like literally you could walk there from from the arc de triomphe it's its own place and you're right it is metabolizing faster than than the core and maybe that's what mm-hmm. happens is parts go into old age while you still have that renewal and that kind of tumult at the edge it's just a matter of how much how much can you carry with your heart with all of this chaos at the edge Okay, um, let me give you, let me extend this metaphor a little bit and talk about a forest. Because I think if we look at like an old growth forest, we wouldn't say that that forest is done, like it's it's finalized, it's finished, even though it might have some massive trees that will be there for hundreds of years, we still recognize that there's a metabolism there, there's a metabolic rate there's understory, there's undergrowth, there's things going on. Certainly the flora and fauna within the trees and within the forest themselves have a high metabolism changeover. There's a whole ecosystem there. But the the big trees, the big structures themselves, occasionally die, fall over, and are replaced with other things that then will take some time to reach that, that level of magnificence again. As an organic system, to me, Paris is more like an old growth forest then it would be, you know, like Washington, D.C., which is a city that we've said, okay, there shall be no changes, you know, in large parts of it. 
I don't get the sense that like Rome or Paris, which are two cities I'm familiar with. I'm not familiar with a lot of other European cities that might be this way, but both of those places seem to me more like an old growth forest than a, an American, you know, static kind of situation. Well, Boston does, you know, Boston has that, that sense, but you know, Boston still has sprawl and the same issues New York has. Boston also has a lot more finer grained communities around it that are baby versions of Boston, like the the, Mm -hmm. the, um, little towns and villages around it that have their own cores and density. Right. I guess their, their, their satellites are a little bit closer together uh, of the bubbles around them. But that's the node and the network you talked about, right? I mean, I feel like those are the places. Let me give you the definition of sprawl that I used in this article I wrote back in 2016. And the article is called Sprawl is Not the Problem. And I was kind of responding to, I think, a, a, a friend of ours, I'll leave them out of it, who said something about, you know, let's let's focus on fighting sprawl, Chuck. Don't don't beat up on engineers and planners. They're good people. Let's focus on that common enemy, which is sprawl. And I'm like, I don't know as the enemy is sprawl. So here's the definition of sprawl that I used in this article that Google basically provided. And I think this is fair. It says the expansion of an urban or industrial area into the adjoining countryside in a way that is perceived to be disorganized and unattractive. And I looked at that and my sense was like, I don't th- I think we, we would all agree that the expansion uh, into the countryside is one key component of sprawl, but the other part that is disorganized and unattractive, I just found to be bizarre because I think sprawl in the U S is like the most highly organized endeavor that has ever been done. I mean, I, I feel like the space program zoning. is not as, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you literally have like regimented, if we talk about the banking system, the building codes, the um, insurance industry, automobiles, street construction, utility expansion, zoning, this is the most highly organized. It's it's like a, it's like a machine rolling down. Like, I don't see how you could call this disorganized. In, in any, I mean, it's like the epitome of organization. It's almost hyper-organized. Also, I would ask the people that live in it, do you find this unattractive? They're not going right. to say, oh yeah, this is, I live in, I live in, this is an eyesore that I live in. And I, mm. it, it, these are people's choices. Um, right. Does your mom think her place is unattractive? Yeah, I, I have. my mom into this. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I love you. Yes. Mom. No, she, she's fine with it. You know, she thinks it's great. So my parents rented a, um, in Florida, cause they live on a farm up here, but in, they went to Florida a couple of winters and they rented, I mean, it just sprawl, right? Like it is the same beige unit built over and over and over again. There's a thousand of them in this one subdivision in Claremont, Florida, and they rented one of them and they loved it. And they thought it was beautiful. They thought it was nice. They thought the grass was well maintained and the street was clean and like, you know, everybody put their garbage can out on the same day and then brought them in. It was beautiful in the way that like a hospital corridor is beautiful, right? Like it was antiseptic, clean. Organized. Yeah. Organized. Right. And they, they liked that. Yeah. And I, I didn't like it, but they did. Yeah. We're talking about sprawl, whether it's bad. Whether it's bad. 
Yeah. And I think we need to get back to that at some point, but I'm, we're still trying to maybe decide what sprawl is. <laughs> we're, we're, we're drifting. I think, I think you're, you're, you're hitting several points. One, one is the ability for things to mature and grow. And it's, it takes a lot of hubris to think that, 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 that we can be judges on stuff. Um, well, especially if, considering if people are making choices to be there. If sprawl is bad because it's disorganized and ugly, like that will never fly. Like that's not a universal argument, right? Because I mean, the disorganized one is wrong and ugly is so ridiculous, you know, so very subjective. I mean, I'm not even saying subjective in like a, you know, modern art kind of way. Is it beautiful or not? There's people who just prefer it as a living choice and see it as beautiful because of that. Yeah. So if sprawl is going to be a, in a sense, bad, it can't be bad on mere aesthetic grounds, right? When we get into our return on investment analyses, we know that when we create those models, what it's going to say, and who is going to be in those zones that are just bleeding red, you have to have a bedside manner or be humble with, with folks that oftentimes they don't know that that information can be found before we got on. I know you I, got the I, books, right? I pulled out these books. There's three different sections. There's the executive summary. There's the actual report, detailed analysis, and these are the bibliography of all you, the research that I did. Like in your talks, you hold up, you have a photo of Richard Nixon, and you're like, he came up yeah. with this. Where did this come from? Environmental Quality HUD and the EPA. And this was during the Nixon, Nixon administration. Yeah, and I don't, I don't think they were using sprawl as like, hey, this is bad. They were just basically. Like these are the types of development patterns. And you can see they put this kind of cheesy puzzle pieces on here. Right. And I think it's to some extent they were, you know, they knew that there was data that people needed to have. So they published those books and they're like, here's data. I always go back to that early 70s, right? Because this was the end of the first generation of post-World War II expansion. And the stuff yeah. that was built right at the end of World War II, by the time you get to the early 1970s, you've got to go out and fix stuff. You've got to go out and repair things, take care of things. And they had to have at that point seen the decline starting to seep in, in a way that I'm guessing most didn't anticipate when they started this. Well, there was decline. I mean, to be fair, that came out four years after they stopped doing redlining. Yeah. yeah. So you you get you yeah. get neighborhoods neighborhoods that have decayed deliberately because of federal policy mm. for three generations. And so you flash forward to the 70s, we're like, well, we have these poor districts. How did that happen? Well, it happened by design. And so I think there was a, a turnaround at, at the federal level of information needs to get out. And this is probably part of it, which is all this stuff on this fast food diet that you're on is not sustainable aside from the fact that it's you know wrecking the planet from an environmental standpoint. So that's why you see the EPA in there and they're probably in there because of, I would say Ian McCard with Design with Nature in 1969 or 68 when that came out. So you see this alignment of people need to see the information. I think it's a lot easier to deliver the information in a PowerPoint than it is to hand somebody those three books and say, have at it, you know? Right. Because there's that's just full of tables and data. It's kind of a little head splitting. You've looked through that book. I don't have it. I've never looked through it. Are they making the case that you and I, let me say this before I finish. I feel like I did a ton of mental lifting to figure out some of the stuff I figured out. And then when I met you, 
you had done all this other mental lifting and it like connected. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I found the guy and you and I have been hanging out ever since. The the kind of shameful thing to me is that I feel like we are, you know, people in the Renaissance discovering things and then realizing that the Greeks knew this stuff a thousand years earlier. <laughs> like every time I figure something out, I'm like, oh my gosh, this was, this was so painful to get to this point. And then you're like, oh, they knew this 50 years ago. Yeah, these are is the, that a value the, per acre? Uh, no, this is the um, neighborhood cost analysis, annual operations and maintenance uh, costs from uh, single family over here to uh, mid-rise apartment building. I mean, I've got books from the 1930s that are doing the same thing, but it's just, yeah, I'm optimistic. I think like, okay, there's not that I'm a, some genius that's going to solve what they couldn't solve, but mm-hmm. it's just just getting the conversation going, um, having this resource of your organization out there, helping people like, look, that you can get answers to this stuff. You can talk about it. It's okay. The world isn't fixed and finite. You know, I think this, this world of that we're in now with particularly, I was just talking with Philip about this today, um, here in the office. Like, remember when we started doing this 10 years ago, you and I, like, we'd have to physically go someplace and have a lecture. Now people yeah. are like, Hey, if you've seen not just bikes, check this out. And it's like a 15 uh, minute, like, like shot in the face of, of information. Uh, it's like, we can actually get more information now. So it's, that's kind of cool. So it's, what's, what's it the digital funny. version of those books? Yeah. It doesn't seem like that work. I'm not going to say did anything, but it doesn't seem like it did anything. Right. Like I'm, I came up through, you know, the engineering professions, which you think, I mean, I had a class in engineering economics and you would think that we would have talked about this and looked at this, but it was never part of the conversation. And I worked for cities all over and never, I mean, not only was it not part of the conversation, but I applied for federal grants. I applied for state loans on behalf of cities. I was awarded millions of dollars, you know, for the communities that I worked in projects that I was working on, got millions of dollars. Like that document, HUD, Environmental Quality, EPA, never found its way into anything that that impacted me. And I had to derive it all from scratch, even though someone 35, 40 years earlier had done it. Why? Yeah, that's true. Inertia and systems, you know, how long does it take for information to cycle out? I'm hopeful. Look at confessions. And that's having an effect inside the profession, but there's still an inertia inside the profession and an unwillingness to get off the kind of the rope patterns of the way things are all have always been done. I'd imagine the same thing happened when those, those books came out that there was an initial inertia in the machine, unwilling to flex. You think about 1974, who was in power? Well, these are people that were, you know, part of the greatest generation at that point that had their hand on the wheel. What were they believing in? We can do no wrong. We can put a man on the moon. We can just build a wider highway. You know, that system of power yeah. was in place when those books came out. So of course it wasn't going to get absorbed. Now the question is, why didn't it, by the time that you were reaching your career and I was getting into mine, why didn't this information cycle back with when the boomers got in control? You know, did they forget about these books? I don't know. Or well, did they become co-opted by the machine? Right. What was the cutting edge questions when we were of that 
you know, this would have been like the late nineties, early two thousands. They were all environmental and not environmental, you know, climate. They were environmental, like you're wrecking wetlands and you're, you know, impacting water quality. And I mean, that was where all the energy was. Well, in, in my world, the CNU, no one wants to live in a townhouse. The market doesn't want that. You'd see all of these incredible designers going out there trying to promote mixed use, mixed mixed design neighborhoods. You'd see projects Dwani Players Arbrook designed that weren't getting funded because there was no perceived market for townhouses. And it was this whole yeah. system that yeah. was that had to be had to be changed. Now yeah. it's like, okay, missing middle, get it. People get it. They they understand that. But and pay a premium the clock back. Yeah, you turn the yeah. clock back, you couldn't get it financed. Um, no, you couldn't. I remember that. So, and zoning so let me codes get... are more flexible with form-based code. I mean, they still have a long way to go to become flexible, but I'm optimistic. <laughs> I think it's that going is, in the right direction. That is true. And you've made me a little more optimistic sitting here now too, because I do think that there's a strong case to be made that there's been a ton of progress. It just feels like a very, in a way, overwhelming so let, let's get back to the very initial question, which I think was something along the lines of, is sprawl bad? Can we make a case for sprawl? If we were going to try to steel man the argument, if we were going to try to Randall O'Toole this thing, but like intellectually honest, what's the strongest case we can make for why the suburban experiment, suburban expansion, outward expansion of cities why that that is a positive force? What would be like the main argument? There's desire points that come along with it. You know, I don't I don't have to hear my neighbor's dog. I get I get a yard. There's a reason why people choose to do that. There's a reason why if you have enough money, you'll go and buy a plot as far away as possible because you don't have to pay for the road to go out there. We're not getting told the true trade-offs, the true costs. The more people that have access to that landscape, and this is a desire and dream going back to Ebenezer Howard and Thomas Jefferson, heck, Karl Marx, spread ye into the countryside on equal size garden plots. There's this Mm -hmm. promise to the healthy, you could live in nature and be part of the city. This is just part of the marketing of what people are, are fed. So it becomes a desire. Why do a lot of Americans buy trucks? Well, you can't watch a football game without seeing at least 55 truck ads. You know, it's like, you never see anybody driving through with a Prius. <laughs> right. So we get marketed this stuff. You know, it's not until you go to for the for the folks that like when I went to Italy, even though I'm Italian, um, and go spend a semester abroad, I came back like a, a nut job. You know, how could mm-hmm. my family leave this environment? This is such an incredible place. I was healthier. I right. loved the food. The architecture is incredible. I didn't know that this existed. I think to some extent it's a consciousness of of, of understanding and being exposed to these places. The more that Americans travel, the more that we see that stuff, the more that we visit these cities. I think that's the harder part is dealing with the inertia of a system. I struggled with this for a long time because when I started to dig into this and it really, I got to the point where like none of the models, none of the financial models that I did made any sense. I assumed that I was doing something wrong. I'm running these numbers and like every city's bankrupt. And how can that possibly be? Like, it doesn't make sense. And then I met, I met you 
and kind of got like a little bit deeper into the revenue side. And I'm like, okay, I assumed that the revenue side was this mysterious black box that I just didn't get. And then you're like, no, here's, here's what it is. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that's, that's, that's dumber than I thought it was. I delved into the Kahneman stuff because I was like, how does a group make a decision to basically eat their seed corn? Like where, at what point do you get to where you're like, we're, we're just out for one generation. Like this, that's the way, that's the way we are. I don't think it's ever presented that way, right? Like I don't think financially you're ever given that. It's the marshmallow test, right? It's like it's the marshmallow we, test. We fail the marshmallow test collectively. We fail it every time over and over the marshmallow test. So the marshmallow test is, I can't remember who it was, what psychologist, Michel, I think was his last it was a French dude. I can't remember his last name. But he put these kids in a room and said, you know, here's here's a marshmallow. If you want, you can ring the bell. I'll come in and you can have the marshmallow anytime you want. But if you wait, if you wait, when I come back in, I'll bring you like way more marshmallows, but you just got to wait. And these kids, like they, they sat and watched them and the kids would like do all this stuff to not ring the bell. They would put their back to the bell. They would sing songs. They would like pick up the bell and like, I'm not going to ring it, but I'm going to hold it in my hand. And they would do all these things. And then they just ring the bell because they had to have that, like the marshmallows right there. Like I want it. I'm a Catholic. Catholicism is a lot about uh, trying to get you to buy into delayed gratification, right? Like that is, <laughs> that is like at its core is like the self-control kind of thing that is drilled into you. I always think that the reason it's drilled into you is because it's so hard, right? Like if it were easy, you wouldn't need a religion to help walk you through this, this like delayed gratification if it was easy to do. Is it just that we fail the marshmallow? Like we give me the $5 today and I'll, I'll take the liability of $50 20 years from now. Yeah. Like I don't, yeah, I, I, I think so. I think it's collective. It's a collective failure for basically simple patience. And it's a tragedy of commons. Every story that we, that we talk about, it's like, I'm going no, to attack you, attack you a little bit, Chuck. Go for like it. You, you wanted to see things change fast. And it's like, well, that's the marshmallow test. It's like, we all want things mm, to happen fast. True. We all want this problem to solve immediately. I mean, that's, there's like, there's great desire in that, that impatience is awesome, but at the same time, it needs to be balanced with, all right, what's the, what's the long-term I think the, the, all of these changes that that all, anybody listening to this podcast has to make in society is going to be a long slog. That's okay, you know, as yeah. long as we're st moving moving forward and taking that longer, bigger gain versus the short term fix that comes with all sorts of other problems that we'll just get frustrated with. It's like think about that. How do we take the push the needle up bigger and deeper, um, if you mm -hmm. will? Mm -hmm. I think I think the work that you're doing is is in in helping people understand the cost and consequences is critical to that, and just saying like look we're just it's we're going to lean in and hear you, but it's going to come with this. You got to wait for that marshmallow. You got to understand the cost of all that. That is the marshmallow test. It is. Although I will tell you, I have had over and over again the same experience, where I mean I go back to when I was a young engineer. And one of my bosses, a person that I like deeply admire, you know, went to the city we were doing this study for and said, you, you should be spending 
two and a half million dollars a year on roads, you're spending 200,000, you're never going to make up the difference, but that's okay. Just keep plugging away at it, keep working at it. And I remember looking, I'm going, that's insane advice. But it, it was like, you know, like, what do you do? Just do the next thing and keep going. I hear people all the time who I feel like deeply understand strong towns and understand your message and understand our message and understand the data. And then they'll get to the project that they really like and they'll say, screw it. Like we need to, we need to do this. I always tell people like, I will lay blame in a macro sense. I try not to ever question local officials and their decision-making because making day-to-day decisions is hard. But it's frustrating for me because I see people who should know better doing the exact thing that they should know better about. And I I don't know what to do in those situations. Yeah, no, I've I've been there. (laughs) Um, You know, and it's hard. I think for me, the frustration is I feel for particularly the, the, the most recent generation out of school that's very, uh, I guess, Gen Z, the digital natives. Yeah, um, my like kids. They want, yeah, they want their hell with it. Like, we have to stop climate change. And I get it. Yeah, um, yeah. But, it, but it's sort of like, okay, do you want to throw a rock at the system or do you want to get on the other side of the wall? That's going to take some, some patience. And you're probably more effective getting on the other side of the machine and pulling a wire out than throwing rocks at the machine. So that's, I think, the the harder thing to have that patience because we don't teach the patience. Um, right. It's also right. it's it's it comes with time. From a sprawl perspective, yeah, it's awesome. It's an attempt at equity that everybody should have their own garden plot, their own chunk of land. That equity, however, is never ends up being fair um, in any of the models that we see. On top of no. that, it's kind of ignorant of all of the costs to get there. And it would be probably better off handing a check to every family for $100,000 rather than investing in that infrastructure to give us a promise of something that we can't achieve. Mm-hmm. So I think when you look at the total cost of the stormwater system in Eugene, Oregon, is $440 million dollars. If they just compacted their city in half, they'd have half the stormwater system, which is $220 million in their pocket that they could have handed every low wealth family. If we go back to being biblical here, the poor are always with us. Well, you could solve that problem yeah. by investing in the poor. I get the continual people come around attacking me for the articles I've written on Flint, Michigan. And at the end of the day, my my articles on Flint, Michigan have always been along the lines of, why would we saddle them with such enormous infrastructure burdens to give them clean drinking water? Why wouldn't we give them clean drinking water quick, uh, you know, quicker and cheaper, and then help them do something else that is more productive than just having a PVC pipe in the ground? It, to me, is a tragedy that we look at equity and success and prosperity in terms of literally how much infrastructure per person you have, as opposed to, you know, how prosperous are you? How much individual family wealth have you created? How, how many job opportunities do you have? How, you know, like things, how happy are you? I mean, that's a, we can be hippies here for a second, but I actually think if we were measuring human happiness, it is, it, we it is get better outcomes, yeah. right? Yeah. 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 I think we got to wrap it up. We're recording this the day before Halloween. 
I got to tell you, Brainerd, Minnesota, especially North Brainerd, where my house is, this is Halloween. I am not like a Halloween person. Like I have, don't wear costumes. I don't do all that. I stand outside and I hand out candy. It is the one night of the year that my neighborhood is magical, magical, magical. I will have 800 kids come to my door. I mean, we're the most walkable neighborhood in central Minnesota. And so everybody comes to our neighborhood and walks it because it's, it is gorgeous. It's great. What do you do on Halloween? I, I, I know you're in the upper story of a duplex, but like, are you, um, are you handing out candy? Are you? Yeah, I'm in one of those neighborhoods, but we'll go over to the main street. That's where the, uh, that's the, uh, the high, high success rate for kids. This is one okay. of my friends lives over there. So we'll go and hang out over their porch and help because it's just absolutely loaded. Yeah. Uh, my old, my old neighborhood was a lot, was a, was a, a, a trick-or-treat neighborhood as well. I mean, it's really, it's like a phenomenal example about walkability and what kids desire, but also a building sense of community. You can't get a better example than Halloween. But um, I do have a costume that I made last year that I'm, I'm going to be this year because I was on the, on the road last year and I couldn't celebrate it. Oh, okay. There, so what are you? What, what are you? There's this truck that drives around downtown Asheville and it's got yeah. a billboard on it. And I, uh-huh. I just, I don't like the truck. It's like, it's, I can see why the owner does it. It's good advertising, but it's just like, come on now, you're just making traffic. So I actually made a, a truck for the. Uh, you are the truck. I'm, I'm the truck. Um, uh huh. I like so it. What I is actually, the sign? It's a. Uh, it's can a you bar say it downtown. Or... Oh, it's a bar. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, gotcha. But uh, yeah, I wore it. I wore it for a dry run on Saturday night, and uh, as I'm like running down the street with yeah. this light up truck, and everybody in the everybody is native like people are just yelling at me like i hate that truck <laughs> like <laughs> i actually won a halloween costume contest on saturday night with that got 150 wow. bucks nice man yeah congratulations Talent, man that's what that's what that design school will do for you kids stay in school stay in school everybody in our neighbor not everybody but lots of people do the full halloween like there's probably more halloween decorations out than christmas decorations really in my neighborhood just cuz it's it's like a halloween destination and i do the very minimalist like I, we don't do any halloween decorations except i go up in our attic cuz we have a you know we have a third you've been there we have a third story attic yeah. and um i have one of these orange lights it's just a light and then it's it spins so it like makes it it looks like there's a spooky spirit up in my attic because the house is all dark and then there's an orange like apparition in the attic and i feel like it's i'm really proud of it my wife says it's cheesy but i'm really proud of it because i'm like it's it's very tasteful it's subtle but really cool right and it takes all of like three minutes to set up so no takedown at the end and our our neighborhood goes hardcore i mean there's people that there's zomb like just full on mm-hmm. zombie things, all sorts of skeletons. There's one guy did a like a like a he was dressed as a zombie in a in a rowboat in his front yard, <laughs> and he like yeah. dug his dug his front yard down, so it looked like the boat was like sitting in the water, and he's just like paddling. I mean, people cool. go all out. It's 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 a scene. Lots of creative people in Asheville. It's a blast. Yeah, yeah, Asheville um, would be kind of fun. All right, thank you, Joe. Well, nice thank to you, talk sir. to you. We'll uh, we'll talk again in a few weeks. Have a good Halloween. Get some good candy. Thanks, man. Bye-bye. Bye.
because they know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Oh, Magnet City! I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit Agenda 21. Yeah.